Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Ron Hansen, also a national reporter for the Republic. In today's episode, we're breaking down the information you need to know before Tuesday's election. We'll look at early voting turnout and what the latest polls are saying. We'll also dive into a few statements made by candidates in the final stretches of the election and what we think that will mean for voters in the end. More than 3 million ballots were sent to Arizonans on the permanent early voting list. That group represents about 75% of registered voters in the state overall. After the first week of early voting, Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs told the media that more ballots had been returned at that point than in 2016. In the first week of voting alone, about 22,000 ballots were received through the statewide election system. But that number doesn't include Maricopa or Pima counties. In Maricopa County, 129,000 ballots were processed in that first week. So, Ron, what accounts for this big uptick in early voting? Is it because of the COVID-19 pandemic? Is it some sort of urgency that voters might feel at this moment? Is it something else, maybe? Yeah, you know, I think it's a lot of different factors all sort of conspiring in the same direction right now. Uh, Clearly, Democrats have a lot of urgency. They want to uh, try to take out the Trump presidency right now. They're also energized about the Democratic Senate candidate and some of the other things on the ballot this year. There's also been, though, the uh, concerns about the postal system and whether or not the mail will be able to process these ballots if we cut it close. So I think that Uh, You know, whether you get there just because you want to vote uh, on one side of the ledger or another, or if you just want to make sure that your vote gets counted and leave yourself time for any kind of problems on that, it just points toward people voting early. And the pandemic, of course, has just added a whole other layer of need to vote by mail for a lot of folks. So, Yvonne, election officials started counting mail-in ballots on October 20th. But the results of early voting won't be revealed until election night around 8 o'clock. Do we have any way of telling what those early ballots will reveal? We will all find out together around 8 o'clock on uh, election night. That's when the first batch of results post. And I think what everyone really needs to kind of brace for is that we may not know the results, likely will not know the results of some of these races that are very closely watched. So that might not be the case if there is a landslide election either for or against the uh, presidential uh, contenders. Um, I think everyone here at the paper is is braced for for maybe not knowing the results of of that race and the Senate race potentially and potentially other congressional races and ballot measures and state races, state house races for a couple of days, maybe a week. We should remember in 2018 uh, in the Senate race against Kirsten Cinema and Martha McSally, we didn't know the results of that race for six days. And so I think what is important for everyone to know going into this is that 
we have a long history of voting by mail here in Arizona. Um, we've been doing this for, for decades. County officials, state election officials are going to really be emphasizing on making sure that they are accurately counting the votes, not necessarily trying to meet voter expectations that we find out who the winner is quickly. That being said, issues always tend to crop up. So, Ron, can you give us a sense of the issues that we're hearing about, if any, uh, when it comes to early voting and voters getting their ballots on time? I mean, can can you kind of take us into that that process and what that looks like? Well, it's hard to say definitively right now because it's been kind of a moving target, and and the ballots have certainly been pouring in uh, across the state. I've heard just anecdotally and even noticed in my own neighborhood that uh, mail service has been slower. Uh, what that is related to is kind of hard to say, and it would be easy to be conspiratorial about it. But the fact is that the mail has still been coming every day. I've heard of people, you know, having more concern and my ballot and my wife's ballot arrived on different days, uh, two days apart. So I think those kinds of things are happening, but I haven't heard of anybody really just saying, look, I just never got my ballot. And here it is the end of October and I never got the early ballot I was expecting. So I think that the system may be a little bit more fitful this time, but the overall uh, trajectory of it still seems to be to be on track and um, moving toward robust turnout, which is what everyone has been expecting for some time. There is still concern, especially in some of the rural parts of the state, that the mail service delays there may really have kind of uh, uh, an impact on the way that the ballots are received, and that could have some knock-on effects as to when they're counted. So uh, that part I don't think is going to come into fuller focus until probably the end of this week when we see uh, what those early voting totals look like at the end of the safe window, it seems. Speaking of which, uh, one final question, Yvonne, about early voting. Is it too late to mail in your ballot? And if so, can you still vote if you didn't fill out your early ballot? Yeah, don't drop that uh, piece of mail in the mail. Um, It is too late to mail in your ballot. October 27th was the official deadline to mail them in. So if you do have a ballot sitting on your kitchen table at home, you can still drop it off at an early voting location or a secure ballot drop box in your county by 7 p.m. on election day. And you can go to arizona.vote to check for your voting locations. And you can also check with the county recorder's office uh, here in Maricopa County to see if your early ballot has been received. Um, I've done it. It's painless. And um, it's definitely worth the satisfaction in uh, doing it, I think. So, Ron, we do have um, questions about a lot of the polling that we've been seeing come out of um, this race, both nationally and here in Arizona. We often look to 538 for um, a rundown of the polls and a calculation of the polling averages on various races. When it comes to the presidential race, 538 shows uh, the Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, ahead of Trump uh, by 9.4 percentage points nationally 
and by three percentage points here in Arizona. So what do we expect on election day? I mean, do we think that Biden can maintain this narrow lead? Do we think that this might, uh, the results might fall within the actual margin of error? I mean, it does seem as though the Biden campaign is very optimistic about its chances here in Arizona. But as we've seen from President Trump and his campaign, they seem to think that they can eke out a victory by picking up votes in rural Arizona. Yeah. So there's a lot to think about there. Number one, I think the uh, the first thing that we need to note is that the 2016 polls were not terrible. They just they missed in a couple of places that really, really mattered a lot. And so for everybody who's kind of nervous about what to make of polling uh, one way or the other, the fact is that the polls got it pretty close to correct in 2016, except for some very consequential misses. And in many cases, those were it misses because people were, you know, overlooking things like the margin of error. And, you know, those things do matter. And so as it relates to Arizona, look, we are one of those states that is probably going to fall within that margin of error. And that means that, yes, if you're the Biden camp, you probably feel good about where you are right about now. But you have to know that this is still close enough that a state that has historically voted Republican should not be considered a long shot to do it again. So uh, the bottom line is this. The turnout is significant. The polls are suggesting Joe Biden would win the national vote and I think those are probably pretty safe to you know keep in mind as it relates to this state that uh, the the margin is still close enough and depends on a lot of new voters for Democrats uh, in a way that you have to at least question whether they'll deliver until they actually do. And to help Democrats uh, survive the last days of this race, remember, they did win in 2018. Uh, they won statewide in a number of different races, and that was really sort of an uh, unusual development that hasn't happened in a long time here for Republicans. You know, one other thing to bear in mind is that while all the turnout has been pretty robust for Democrats in the early voting, you only vote once. And a lot of Republicans have made it clear they were holding on to their ballots and they were going to come on Election Day. So this thing is far from settled. Similarly, what are the polls saying, Yvonne, about the Senate race uh, between Republican Martha McSally and Democrat Mark Kelly? Yeah, so we have consistently seen polling that suggests McSally is really trailing um, Kelly by various margins. Some put the race within the margin of error. Most of them put um, uh, McSally behind outside of the margin of error, which suggests that she is actually underperforming President Donald Trump in this state. Um, one poll that we uh, reported on and, and looked closely at was the morning consult poll, which had um, Mark Kelly up by just uh, four points but you know, still within this margin of error. It's important to remember that McSally lost her 2018 race by about 2.3 percentage points. So she not only has to pick up those people who have already rejected her, but she has to really sort of try to pick up other votes as well to, to eke out a win over Mark Kelly. 
Um, I would be surprised if we see a winner on election night. I think both campaigns are settling in for several days of potentially not knowing who the winner is again in a repeat potentially of, of 2018. I think, you know, it doesn't really sort of take a deep dive into the Twitterverse though, to find people who are still questioning the validity of polling. And I do have to say for, for good reason, many polls, as you said, had Clinton ahead, Hillary Clinton ahead in the 2016 election. So taking all of this into consideration, why do newsrooms like ours still report on polls, given that there are some, uh, many people who just flat out, you know, distrust them? Should we all just be waiting for the results of the election? You know, I I think that polling is a social science, which can make people crazy because it is not hard science. Uh, water freezes at 32 degrees, but you know, when you say someone's going to win by two points, that may happen, but it might not. And I think those kinds of areas of uncertainty on human behavior can make people pretty crazy. And especially uh, if you were disappointed in 2016, uh, you really find it hard to believe the polling today that says, oh, don't worry, Joe Biden's got this. If you're delighted with the results in 2016, you feel like this has all been fake news all along and they're just trying to prevent the inevitable once again. So I think it's just human nature for a lot of people to kind of look at these things very suspiciously when I think that the polls are mostly just misunderstood by the lay population that they really do have margins of error and they're just things that we can't account for. You know, one thing just right now that is a really big uncertainty to me is election day turnout. This is something that that Republicans are planning on doing in large numbers all across the country on election day. Well, you know, one of the things that can happen is you could have a weather event, for example, that could disrupt uh, significant voting. That happened in New Mexico in 2004. That race was settled by less than 400 votes. Uh, Weather was a major factor in determining who won that state in that election. And it's hard to say now uh, what the weather will be that could impact it or any other kinds of variables like that. But it doesn't mean that the pollsters just got it wrong. Sometimes it means that there just stuff happens. So the New Mexico thing is scary, and I hope we do not see a return of the monsoon just, you know, for democracy's sake on Election Day. One of the things that really cracks me up um, in watching the reaction to various polls is that it's always the people who are behind who are calling the polls fake. Um, And so that is something to keep in mind. It does help them raise money, though, I have to say. Um, So we've sort of arrived to this final fun little segment of the day. So for those of you who haven't voted yet, we want to break down some of the biggest um, claims that we have heard candidates make during this election cycle. And we just kind of want to give you a a bit of a gut check on them. And you can go to azcentral.com and you can read more um, uh, of our coverage about these issues if you want to dive a little deeper. So Ron, first up, President Trump has repeatedly questioned the validity of voting by mail. And he's gone on record saying, you know, that the only way Republicans will lose this election is if it's rigged. And here he is at a campaign event in August in Wisconsin. 
So we have to win the election. We can't play games. Get out and vote. Do those uh, beautiful absentee ballots, or just make sure your vote gets counted. Make sure, because the only way we're going to lose this election is if the election is rigged. Remember that. Ron, what can you tell me about the safety of voting by mail and whether or not the election is indeed rigged? Well, I won't vouch for Wisconsin or a lot of other states, but I can say this, that especially here in Arizona, as the New York Times recently reported, you know, Arizona has really figured out how to do voting by mail. We've been doing it for a couple decades. It's gotten more popular and uh, our officials here have been through this a number of different times. We've had incredibly close races that required second looks and, and even litigation. We've had uh, a lot of blowout races that went exactly as expected. The, the thing that we've seen uh, time and again, though, is that the administrations uh, of these elections has been uh, pretty consistent in finding that the, the early tabulations ended up being pretty close to the final tabulations on this as well. And we haven't had a lot of shockers that were just complete uh, unexpected results based on polling ahead of these things. So Arizona is, I'm happy to report, uh, a state that has really kind of shined in terms of overall election administration. We have certainly had a lot of different hiccups and mistakes and things that are not uh, the way that you want to administer elections, but the overall shape of it is secure and consistent. And I think, you know, when you look at it nationally, Florida is another state, very important this cycle as always, and they have a long history of doing this by mail. When you look at another important state like Pennsylvania, this is going to be really their first go round with uh, significant mail-in uh, participation. It's a little less clear how this is going to work out there, but there has been at least significant public attention to it. And really, the one thing that I don't think that we've seen is significant evidence of really kind of uh, an intent to do things uh, in an underhanded way. And that, I think, is the most important thing, is that public confidence in this process should at least start in the right place. So, Yvonne, uh, a question for you. If we look at the Senate race between Senator McSally and Mark Kelly, McSally's campaign has really gone after Mark Kelly hard, uh, in some cases uh, reminiscent of the uh, approach she had with Senator Kirsten Sinema in 2018. And in particular, one of her constant lines of attack has been his relationship with China. Here's hype man Mark Kelly pitching products in China. But what can you tell us really about Mark Kelly's relationship with China? Yeah, so we have seen China emerge as part of the Republican playbook uh, for Republican candidates uh, to use against their Democratic challengers. Um, one of the things that we have seen really consistently throughout the, the most heated part of this race over the last six months or so is McSally and her Republican allies really trying to raise questions about Mark Kelly's dealings with um, Chinese interests. And most of the attacks seem to hinge on his investment ties to a Tucson-based company that he co-founded, and that's called Worldview Enterprises. 
And they use balloons to launch these low-altitude stratolites into the air for commercial and government mapping. And Kelly co-founded this company, and then he worked as a strategic advisor. Um, That's a position that he left uh, in February 2019, which was the same month that um, he launched his Senate campaign. And the, the... Center of the attack focuses on a company, a Chinese company called Tencent Holdings, and that's a giant tech company. And they are among the investors in Worldview. And Tencent, like a lot of other Chinese tech company, works with the Chinese authorities to, you know, find criminals and suspects and to quiet the political opposition. And Mark Kelly continues to hold investments in Worldview. So that is the primary attack. It takes a couple of steps to get there, but that is a relationship that Republicans are really trying to draw attention to. McSally, during the one and only debate, you know, asserted that Mark Kelly took the Chinese Communist uh, Party flag to China, which he did not. Um, other uh, mailers suggest that, you know, voters maybe should question his allegiance to the United States. I got one the other day that had him dressed in a NASA um, get up. I don't I don't really know what what officially you call that his his astronaut uniform. And when you tilted it, it uh, an image of the Chinese communist flag emerged. And if that isn't trying to question somebody's patriotism or allegiance to somebody's country, I don't know what is. And this is a bit reminiscent of some of the attacks that McSally made on Kirsten Cinema back in 2018. We're not going to get into all those now, but that is a tactic that they're using um, in this race. And during the debate, he took it to her pretty early on and said, you know, you're using the same sort of attacks that you used on cinema. You're trying to question my patriotism. And she told him, you know, Mark, I am not questioning your patriotism. I'm questioning your judgment. We need someone who's going to be strong on China, not doing business with them. It should also be noted that President Donald Trump and his family has vast, vast business dealings with China. And so that is something that should be noted. She has not criticized the president in the same way that she has criticized Mark Kelly. And Mark Kelly has questioned McSally's stance uh, on the Affordable Care Act, which ensures coverage for those with pre-existing medical conditions. Mark Kelly will protect the Affordable Care Act. McSally would repeal it. The Affordable Care Act is the signature legislative accomplishment of uh, former President Barack Obama. He's a Democrat. And during the only Senate debate, which I helped co-moderate, McSally claimed that she would protect those with pre-existing medical conditions. I will always protect people with pre-existing conditions, and Democrats and Republicans agree about that. Ron, can you kind of cut through the campaign rhetoric, and what's the truth of the matter here on this issue? Yeah, so this is uh, uh, slightly complicated, but what it really boils down to is this. I guess it, it comes down to trust. If you look at her voting record in the House of Representatives, she voted on multiple occasions to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which would have sent us back to a world before the ACA where that kind of guaranteed coverage was not uh, in effect everywhere. That means that people with pre-existing conditions could have been excluded. 
If you look right now, she is a co-sponsor of a Republican bill in the Senate that would guarantee um, coverage for pre-existing conditions, but with the significant fine print that it would have perhaps disparate effects on the basis of gender. So, for example, it is quite conceivable, according to people who are experts in healthcare policy, that women could end up paying more for healthcare services than men just because of the difference in gender. Uh, and that would be a change from what people are accustomed to under the ACA presently. Um, it's also the case, though, just to note, Mark Kelly wants to change the Affordable Care Act somewhat as well. And uh, he has not said that he wants to take away pre-existing condition coverage. I, that is very clear. But in terms of the overall structure and who would be eligible for uh, government programs or at different costs, that is also in flux. So, you know, to boil it down, both candidates are talking about changes to the health care system as it relates specifically on the issue of pre-existing conditions. Clearly, Martha McSally has had a record that would have left uh, it possible for states to seek waivers and would have opened the door for uh, a gap in pre-existing coverage for everybody. And when you look at Mark Kelly, he has advocated change, but not to that particular aspect. So let's shift gears to one other issue in the Senate race, Yvonne. This is one that's been sort of a sleeper issue of sorts, uh, and that's the role of guns and gun control legislation. Uh, talk about where both candidates stand on gun rights and gun control measures. So this was an issue that I had anticipated a year ago would get a lot of attention. I think you anticipated it as well. Um, you know, both of these candidates um, are Second Amendment uh, supporters. They are both former military uh, uh, veterans, retired veterans. They shoot guns. But gun violence and gun, um, the issue of gun safety has really shaped Mark Kelly's life in a way uh, that I don't think any other's story could could really match. Um, his wife is former Arizona Congresswoman Gab Gabrielle Giffords. She represented the Tucson area for a number of years in Congress and at the State House. She uh, was shot in the head during a mass shooting in 2011. Six people were killed. 13 people were wounded, including her. She's still trying to recover. Um, she ha will have lifelong therapy. Um, and, you know, Mark Kelly found himself making awful decisions about his wife's health care. And then after it became clear that she would survive and she was on a road to recovery, they turned their sights to gun control and they made it their life's mission to advocate for restrictions on firearms. And they founded a group called, uh, now called Giffords, um, after the shooting of, of children, 26 children and adults at Sandy Hook. And this is an organization that, um, you know, supports 
uh, research. It um, does all sorts of legal work in various states on this issue. And politically, it um, supports or tries to try to defeat uh, candidates across the nation. And some of the endorsements and the financial uh, donations that this group has made while Mark Kelly was with the group um, drew the ire of Martha McSally and, and Republican allies. And they have first said, look, here he is in, you know, these photos or working with this group and, um, you know, his associations with very liberal progressive figures suggest that he's not the moderate Democrat that he's presenting himself to, to you Arizona voters to be. That's the first line of attack. The second line of attack is that he's going to take away your firearms because he advocates for universal background checks and red flag gun laws and a lot of other restriction, you know, restriction policies in an effort to try to prevent mass shootings. So that is an issue that emerged late in the game. What we haven't heard much about is McSally's previous views on red flag gun laws. And this is something that she said that she was open to considering in 2019 after a spate of mass shootings in um, California, Texas, and elsewhere. She kind of talked about it for a couple of weeks, made headlines, and then didn't touch it again. And then during the debate, tried to act as though she had never said that she was considering to, to taking up, um, you know, that issue under consideration at least. And, you know, we haven't really heard her talk about her own position on the red flag gun laws, but we have heard her talk a lot about how she will not be a gun grabber like Mark Kelly would be and that she would protect Second Amendment rights. And it's a rallying cry that resonates with a lot of voters, particularly um, rural voters. So that's a lot about what has played out in on the Senate side. What about the House races? Has this issue emerged? You know, it's come up around the periphery uh, of the two races that are probably most remarkable this cycle. Uh, let's take them one at a time. So in the 6th District race, that's the one with David Schweikert, the Republican incumbent, against Hirol Tipperneni, the Democratic challenger. Uh, Dr. Tipperneni has been uh, a pretty outspoken advocate of some gun control restrictions. She comes at it from a science-based, evidence-based policy approach that she says just from you know her experience as a doctor, she looks at it and says there are just some kinds of policy movements that we can move uh, ahead with that doesn't erase the Second Amendment but does leave space to make some improvements in keeping guns out of the hands of people who are a danger to themselves or others. Uh, and we've seen the uh, uh, some of the independent expenditures uh, involve the National Rifle Association's related um, uh, spending group that has made a small investment in that race to make people aware of it. It has not been the major issue of this race, but it is at least at the end sort of one one aspect of it that is part of the messaging campaign by the NRA's affiliated IE group trying to reach conservative voters for whom this issue is still important. If you look at the other race, the first district race, that involves Tom O'Halloran, the Democratic incumbent, and Tiffany Shedd, the Republican challenger. Uh, Tiffany Shedd has really kind of introduced herself to voters as someone who is of the people, very much of that district, and 
part of that includes her background and long history as someone who shoots guns. She has been a firearms instructor, and she's made no bones about her strong support for the Second Amendment. I think that it's been a tougher attack to say that Tom O'Halloran, who is a former Chicago police detective, is not supportive of uh, gun rights, but it is something that they've kind of come at it a little bit from the side saying that a vote for O'Halloran empowers people like Nancy Pelosi, who then empowers people who are gun control advocates. And uh, they also want to, for example, defund the police, which is sort of a closely related law and order kind of issue. So I think that in this case, you're seeing uh, sort of an extension of the concern for personal safety uh, by someone who clearly has made her own uh, uh you know, plans on Second Amendment rights to be known. But it really has not been just an overt frontal attack that Tom O'Halloran is a gun grabber. That's a hard case to make. But it does uh, have a little bit more resonance if she's saying that voting for him empowers the rest of the Democratic majority. Well, gaggle listeners, that is all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Audio in today's episode comes from The Telegraph, KPNX 12 News, and Next Gen America. And if you haven't subscribed to The Gaggle yet, you should do it now. We'll return next week with a breaking post-election episode, one we've all been waiting for. We'll walk you through the results as we know them, and we'll let you know what we don't know. You don't want to miss that episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you still need to vote, we can help you with that too. Visit azcentral.com to help find information on creating your voting plan. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez. If you want to follow along with my work, I'm on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. And I'm on Twitter at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's episode was produced by Maritza Dominguez with help from Taylor Seeley and Katie O'Connell. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.